This morning's message is part one of two parts, and it's entitled The Seed Over the Serpent. And we are in chapter 12 of Revelation, so we are basically a little over halfway through this book, and we're going to be picking up the speed here in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, but I felt it best to split this up in two parts because there is a lot of imagery in this one. There's a lot of imagery, and we're talking about dragons and horns and all these kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's going to be wild, so, uh, I'm, but I'm looking forward to it, and I think that, we'll have, that the Lord has something for us here. Um, so the seed over the serpent, part one, I want to begin with just an introduction, and, and the, the, uh, the title of my introduction is The Black Arrow. Now, there might be like three of us in here, maybe four, that recognize that line, that phrase, the black arrow. And if you do recognize it, then welcome to nerddom, right? The kingdom of nerds, all right? I welcome you, and you will get your gift bag on the way out. Um, If you don't, that's okay. That means that you lived a life of existence without the greatest non-biblical book ever written, which is The Hobbit. And so, and and I tell you, it really is. Outside the Bible, I've read that book three or four times. I love it. I'll read it again, I'm sure. But the black arrow is the introduction here. In The Hobbit, uh, just to give you, those of you who have not been blessed with The Hobbit, uh, just a little bit of background. In that, in that book, Bilbo Baggins, The Hobbit, Gandalf the Grey, The Wizard, and their furry dwarf friends, you know, Keely and Dweely and Dummy and I don't know what all that, Sleepy, is that one of them? Uh, okay, okay, all right. Anyway, <laughs> wrong, wrong dwarfs, right? Wrong dwarfs, all right. Uh, they, they, are, they are chasing after this pile of gold. The only problem is, is that there is this ancient serpent, the dragon smog, that is lying wait for anybody who would try to get this gold in this ancient city. He's guarding it with his life. And this dragon uh, was so fierce that its scales were like titanium. You just could not injure this dragon. There was no way to injure the dragon. It was like titanium armor. The only thing that could defeat this dragon was the black arrow. The black arrow was this large iron arrow that was meant to be shot in the only chink of armor that this dragon had. The only spot that could injure this dragon, the only thing that would injure it was the black arrow. Today, It is popular amongst many liberal theologians to claim that Satan and demons and angels and even God himself are merely symbols that the Bible uses to teach morals and to scare us into submission. Or another way is to give us comfort, that they're just myths, they're stories to put us at ease, right? I was watching the movie The Marksman yesterday with Liam Neeson in it, and just a tip, don't kill his dog or he will come after you. Don't kill John Wick's dog either, all right? But anyway, in that, in that movie, a young boy loses his mother. She, she dies, and he's praying and hoping that he'll get to see her again in heaven one day. And the marksman, Liam Neeson's character, who was visibly upset and disturbed by all this, and he had experienced much loss in his life and was probably very discouraged and somewhat depressed. So don't don't deal with those fairy tales. Those are all fairy tales just to make you feel good. I know it's a movie, but the truth is that's what a lot of people feel about Scripture, that Satan's meant to scare us, 
that God and angels are meant to comfort us, but that's all that they are. They teach the Bible is no more than a collection of fallible stories produced by fallible men with the intention of influencing thoughts and actions. But we believe in God's Word. We believe that the words that are in Scripture are true, that they are real, that dragons, folks, are real. So when your kids or when your grandkids ask, are dragons real? The answer is yes. Dragons are real. Because Satan is real. And he is characterized as that great red dragon. He's alluded to in the Old Testament as the Leviathan. We believe in God's Word. We believe in God the Father, Jesus His Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. We believe that Satan is prowling and that his demons are active. Yes, we believe that there are dragons, at least one. That deceptive dragon, the devil himself. Satan, the great accuser of the saints, has two great aims, it seems. The first is this, to cause believers to apostatize, to renounce their faith, or to lead unbelievers away from Christ. So if you are a believer this morning, Satan's goal is to force you, to cause you, to lead you to reject Jesus, to renounce your faith, or the popular phrase today is to begin a deconstruction process, to deconstruct your process. Now, I've said this before, but I just want to say it one other time, all right? You did not build your own faith. Your faith is a gift, all right? You did not earn it, all right? It was given to you by God, and so you cannot deconstruct what you never constructed in the first place. And so I don't know what people are deconstructing these days, but it's not faith. And so he's trying to cause you to lose your faith or reject faith in general. And if you are an unbeliever this morning, he's perfectly content in making you stay that way. See, that's what he does. He will try and do his best, and he's really good at it. To put things in your presence to keep you from believing. If you are not a Christian this morning, Satan feels like he's winning. And he will continue to just put things in your way to keep you focused on those things instead of on Christ, the one who truly matters. And it seems like in these last days, Satan has been very active. But we also believe that this dragon can be defeated. And not by some long black iron arrow shot by Bard the bowman. Rather, this dragon will be defeated by a babe in the manger. He will be defeated by a carpenter's son. He will be defeated by a prophet rejected in his hometown. He will be defeated by an innocent man hanging on a cross. He will be defeated by an empty tomb. And he will be defeated by an ascended king. That's who's going to defeat this, this dragon. That's who's going to defeat him. You have no power, no power to defeat Satan on your own. If you say, I can defeat Satan on my own, I can defeat sin on my own, I can battle temptation and defeat him, defeat it on your own, on my own, you are fighting a losing battle. You will not win that battle. It will not happen. But you can with Christ. 
with Christ, you will have victory. It's appropriate that this passage would come on the first day of Advent as we begin to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's read this passage together this morning. Chapter 12 of Revelation, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his heads, seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Let's pray. As we walk through this passage, Lord, I pray that you would be with us and that you would help us understand this text. And that you would help us to apply this text and be encouraged by it. We give you all the glory this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The birth pains. Verses 1 through 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, if you have your Bibles open this morning, you might want to just put a little slip of paper or highlight it or just remember it on your phone or your tablets, all right? Because we're going to be jumping around and bouncing around a little bit because there is a lot of Old Testament imagery. And I've heard individuals ask, say, we're in the church, we're Christians, we're New Testament believers, why do we need the Old Testament? Well, you need it for this. Because if you don't understand the Old Testament, you're not going to understand what we're talking about today. And so I'm going to try to share that with you. It's going to be really important for us to identify the players in the coming verses and chapters so that we can completely understand what's taking place and what's at stake here. It seems that much of what John is writing about is highly symbolic. And so, we, so John is seeing this vision, which is symbolic. He says it's a symbol of this woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, and she has diadem. She has a crown, if you will, right? And so it's very symbolic here. But that doesn't mean that there's not background for this symbolism. So if we look at verse 1, this appears to be an allusion to Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 through 10. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, you all remember, okay, that there was... Jo- so Jacob, all right, and if, and if you're a, a youngster in here, if you haven't read this passage, you might have watched Veggie Tales, all right? My favorite Veggie Tale of all was this story about Joseph, Jacob, and all of his brothers. I loved it. Right, and they were, and when they, when the famine occurred, Joseph wasn't storing like grain; he was storing what, pizza. I mean, it was like right up my alley. I loved it. I may watch it again today. Anyway, the story goes like this: Jacob has a bunch of kids, right? But there's this one kid who's a bit of a stinker, all right, and it's Joseph. Joseph, the youngest of them at that time, Benjamin's not born yet. Joseph is a bit of a stinker. 
and he tells his brothers and his mother and father that they are going to bow down and worship him. It's, it's kind of this, this weird like dream, prophetic vision, right, that he has. Let's look at Genesis 37 through 9. It says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I had dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now, knowing the story... We know that eventually Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. The father, Jacob, thought that Joseph was dead, that he had been killed. And Joseph kind of goes from household to household, imprisoned eventually to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And Joseph is given control because of his intelligence, his faith, and these dreams that the Lord has blessed him with has been given him basically second in command in all of Egypt in order to save the country and the surrounding lands from the famine that is getting ready to come. And we know that eventually Jacob and the family requires that food, and so they go to Joseph in order to get that food. And so we see that the dreams come true. We see that they are, they are happening at that time. So you remember that these prophetic dreams seem to dictate this immediate future for Joseph, but what we realize when we read chapter 12 of Revelation is that Joseph's dreams were foreshadowing something even bigger. What we see is that that story that really happened with Joseph all the way back in Genesis was actually looking forward to something that was going to happen in Revelation. So who is this woman? It seems that Revelation is telling us that this woman, clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, and adorned with a crown of stars, it represents the people of God. That's who this woman is. She represents the people of God, and she is in labor. She's pregnant, and she is having birth pains. Now, how do we know that? Well, Jacob and his children represent the people of God. Remember, those are the 12 tribes that all of the Israelites come from, right? And so John is seeing that Jesus is revealing this prophetic word to John, and John is seeing this symbolism here, and he is seeing this woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, and adorned with a, with a crown of 12 stars, that that's no accident, that she is representing the people of God, and that she is pregnant, and there are some commentators that take it even a step further that believe that this woman represents Mary and the child represents Christ. Now, what we can say is this. The child that she is pregnant with absolutely represents Christ. I don't want to go so far as to say that the woman represents Mary. What I will say is that we, what it represents is the people of God whom Jesus comes from. Okay? That's who this woman represents. This woman, she is in labor, and the child will be the long-awaited Messiah. She is in agony, as Israel was in agony, because they are waiting for this Messiah to rescue them from their wilderness and from their exile. Let's look at what Micah chapter 4, 9-10 through 10 says. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? 
that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Is there no king? Has our counselor perished? Where is our king? These are the questions of people crying out for God to rescue them. This is why the coming of the Messiah is likened to a woman in birth pains, in this agony, is that once she gives birth, there's going to be this massive celebration because the Messiah has arrived. But before that takes place, there is agony and there is pain. Why? Because they are having to endure the, the outcome of the fall. They're enduring the sin. They're enduring the brokenness. They're enduring their own exile at that time. And so they're in the birth pains until he comes. In this section of Revelation, Jesus is revealing to John a mixture of what is going to happen with events that have already taken place and to share a bigger picture. This soulful cry, how long, O Lord, is not a new cry. Remember that. In Revelation, the saints under the throne are crying out, how long, O Lord, will it be before you avenge us? That is not a new cry. We have been crying that cry Since Genesis chapter 3, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, will you pull us out of this exile? How long, O Lord, will we be separated from you? And folks, the answer was not in Saul. The answer was not in David. The answer was not in Solomon. The answer was not in the judges. The answer was not in any of those. The answer was this babe born to, born to this carpenter and this little virgin girl. Not even in an inn, but in a stable in a manger. That's the answer to how long, O oh Lord. It's Christ. He was the answer to the cry of the Israelites when they were crying, Where is our king? This is your king. This is your king. He's not wearing a crown of gold and diamonds. He's wearing a crown of thorns. This is your king. And still yet, the saints are crying out, How long, O Lord, will it be before you avenge us? And what God is saying is, Not long, because the answer is Christ again. You know, we kind of joke, you know, what is the answer? The answer is always Jesus, right? In Sunday school, the answer is always Jesus. Well, who is our rescue? It has always been Jesus. It was Jesus the first time, and it will be Jesus the second time. He's the answer to this. Who is our rescue? How long will it be before you rescue us? And then it happens. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is well pleased. He was not wrapped in the finest linens. He was not wrapped in gold and pearls. He was wrapped in the cheapest of things. But this is your Savior. Who had the answer? The angels. A host of them saying glory to God in the highest. And not just for the wealthy. Not just for the wealthy. Not just for the successful, not just for the educated, not just for the Americans. For everyone. Because that's who who Jesus is. He is everyone's Savior. He is everyone's rescue. There is no one who is found outside of Christ. We are found inside of Christ or we are not found. We are lost. He is our rescue. Israel could not save themselves. You cannot save yourself, but Jesus saves. He saved and he still saves. And as we see, this dragon, the devil, will and has met his doom. And I love this line from The Hobbit. It says, so comes snow after fire and even dragons have their endings because Satan is prowling right now but it will not last forever because even dragons have their endings let's talk about that dragon Revelation chapter 12 verses 3 through 4 and another sign appeared in heaven behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. You know, this sounds really similar to what Pharaoh did to Moses, right? That he was going to kill all those firstborn, those, those boys. But what happens? This little wicker basket sent through the, sent through the river saves that child. Or King Herod trying to eliminate the Savior before he's born. This dragon just waiting there, waiting to, and it's, it's folks, I, I, we read this and we kind, of, we, we, we kind of clean it up a little bit, but I want you to imagine this. 
All right, many of, of us in here have experienced it either very physically, all right, or have been present during childbirth, all right? Folks, that's a messy thing, right? It, it just is. This dragon is waiting there. Picture, go ahead and picture that. This dragon is waiting there for this child to be born so that he can devour it as soon as it comes out. It's gruesome. And that's what Satan is wanting to do. He's wanting to eliminate the threat. There is no question in his mind who this child is and what he's going to do if he's allowed to survive. Now at this time, what John is doing is he's showing a bigger picture. This isn't prophetic, meaning looking forward. What he's doing is he's, showing, he's going backwards to show what Satan was doing at the birth of Christ. Okay? That's what he's doing here. That this is not going to happen. This has already happened. And we see this picture of Christ being born and what was happening is that Satan was using all these individuals to try to defeat Christ before Christ could defeat him. Think of all the individuals that Satan put in the way of Jesus so that he would not accomplish his mission. Just think of all of them. In verses 7 through 9, we're informed that this dragon is Satan. We're going to be talking about that next week. But he's called the deceiver of the whole world. But there are some curious symbols that go along with this dragon. So first, we see that, his, that, that he has horns and diadems, which are very similar to Christ and how Christ is represented earlier in Revelation. So if you go back a few chapters, Christ has, is, is symbolized through horns and through a crown, Okay, that that's Christ. What's going on here, and what you're going to see further on, and multiple commentators agree on this, is that Satan is mocking Jesus, mocking the Trinity, and he's creating a parody of the Holy Trinity. And in this picture, Satan is creating a parody of Jesus. And what is a parody? A parody is something that looks at something genuine and then mocks it, or pokes at it, but it's not the real thing. It's inferior to the real thing. No matter what Satan does to try to make himself look like the Holy Trinity, to look like Christ, and to, to look like Christ to the world, he will fail at every step. Satan cannot match up with Jesus. I almost wrote in my sermon, in fact, I started typing it, where I said, where I was getting ready to say that Satan had met his match. I, I mean, like it was like, whoa, like my fingers started burning. I deleted it immediately. Satan didn't meet his match. There is no match for Christ. There is none. What Satan met was his future demise. That's what he met. If Jesus has power symbolized by horns, then the devil will demonstrate power. Just less of it. If Jesus has a crown representing this messianic reign, then Satan will have a crown, just a smaller one. However, we, we also see that Satan doesn't have enough power or might to compete with the king of kings. This child will crush his head. 
Yes, Satan will bite the heel. But Christ will crush his head. And at the same time, these symbols are referenced in Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had a great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now in Daniel, and later in Revelation, what we're going to see is that Satan exerts much of his power through worldly rulers and authorities. That's who this fourth beast was. These horns in Daniel represented authorities of power, human authorities in power. That's what they represented that were counter to the kingdom of Christ. So these were antagonistic to the kingdom of God. And that's what we see in, in Daniel. That's what we see in the rest of Revelation is that they represent these kings of the earth. Now, this does not mean that every... I, I don't want you to leave here, and, and please don't take it like this. When I say that, that in Revelation and in Daniel, that this beast or this dragon and these horns represent kings of the earth or authorities in power, I don't mean that to say that every single author, authority on the planet is a is a pawn of Satan. I don't mean that. That would be a gross overstatement of that. But what I do mean is that there is only one true king. There is only one king. We do not bow to any authority except for Christ. We respect authority. We respect them. We give them their honor that is due them. But we do not bow to them. We do not bow to them. We bow to Christ and Christ alone. It does mean that Satan will continue to use earthly governments for his bidding. We're not going to become more free to worship, but less as we get closer to the end. And we already see that. We see it tightening up. We see it in other nations. We're going to begin seeing We're seeing it here. The next thing that we see in this passage is that this dragon casts down a third of the stars to the earth. Now, I'm going I'm to show you two things here. Okay, The first is that this is a reference, and likely true, of Daniel chapter 8, verse 10, that is describing Antioch the fourth Epiphanes. That's a historical dude, okay? Here's what you need to know. He was really bad. Really, really bad. He defiled the, pe the worship of the people of God. And Daniel writes, It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. So I absolutely believe that's true. I believe that's a reference to Daniel. But I think even more so, I believe it represents the persecution of the church. You see, the stars that are being thrown down are not the stars that are on this diadem. They're not the stars on the woman. They're the stars that are in the heaven, okay? Now, if you'll just go back with me for a minute, I'm not going to take you there in Scripture, so I'm just, we're going to paraphrase. What did God direct Abraham to do? He pointed up to the sky, and he said, count the stars. 
number them one by one. Because the generations that follow you will outnumber those stars. Those stars are symbolic of believers who would believe in the name of Christ. I think I've said this before. Let me say it again. When God directed Abraham to look at the stars in heaven and to number them, to number those stars, He was talking about you. He was talking about you. You were one of those stars that you are a product of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. See, we think we're so detached from everything that went on before that these are just stories of old. No, you are one of those stars. If you are a believer in Christ this morning, God was having Abraham gaze upon you. You are part of those generations. But the great red dragon is going to cast a third of them down from the heavens. What does that mean? It's not a literal number. What it means is that there is going to be a significant portion of believers that are going to be crushed before it's over. And we're already seeing that. You see, the great tribulation is not something that we're looking forward to. We wouldn't be looking forward to it anyway. But it's not something in our future. It's something that we're in right now. We are experiencing it right now. That great red tail is whipping around right now and believers are falling left and right. But Christ is still victorious. You see, Satan doesn't want this child to live, but he does. And just think of the many ways that Satan has used rulers and the ruling class just to kill or stifle Jesus. Think of it. Herod, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Romans, Pilate. And even today, he's using individuals to stifle the message of the good news. How many closed countries do we have around the world closed to the gospel? Satan's using those authorities to close the gospel off so that people won't hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That's not by accident. If Jesus fails, we are all doomed. But as we know, Jesus is victorious and he will be victorious. So let's go to the end here. The birth of a king. It says, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So the first thing I want you to witness here is that she gave birth. She gave birth and immediately this child is taken up into heaven. Now, we already know this is Jesus, but we're like, that's not the the story. I mean, he lived for 30-some years and then died on a cross, was buried. He rose, and then he ascended, right? John just skips to the ascension. What he's saying is, folks, the devil tried to devour Christ, but Christ is at the right hand of the Father right now. He didn't win. 
Christ is ascended into His rightful place in the throne of God. He is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And He's sitting next to the Father at this moment. Did Jesus die? Absolutely, it's crucial to the gospel. He had to die. He had to die. But if Satan had been successful in eliminating Jesus from the picture before the opportunity to go to the cross, then Satan wins. But that's not what happens here. Let me go one step further just to show you how this works. If Satan is victorious on at any step of the way, if God's people are not taken into captivity in Egypt, then where does Moses come from? If Moses is eliminated from the picture early, what happens to the people of God? Who's leading the people of God out of Egypt? If, if the Pharaoh does not let his people go, where are we now? If the walls of Jericho do not fall down, if Boaz does not redeem Ruth, where do we go now? If Samuel doesn't find little David shepherding sheep, where do we go from here? All along the way, if the people of God are not taken into captivity as it was deemed by God to go to Babylon, where does the story of Daniel come from where John looks back to in order to pull symbols from so that we understand? the? You see where we're going here. Satan never wins, and every bit of this is a providence of God. There is no coincidence in our life. God is in control of all of it. Every bit of it matters. So when God takes from you, when God takes from you, it may hurt for a while. But for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, you will see the glory of what He has done for you in the end. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now remember, this woman represents the people of God. Now, I want you to hear this real quick. It would be really easy for us to imagine that this woman is the Israelites fleeing into the wilderness from Pharaoh. That's the picture that's being painted here, right? That's sort of the, the symbols that are going here. But that's not what John is referring to here, okay? And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1,260 days. Here's what I believe this is. I believe this is a picture of the church. That Remember that 1260 days, is not an, it's, it's a symbolic number that represents the entirety of the period of time between the time when Christ rose from the grave to the point where He will come again. That's what that 1260 days stands for. That's what the 42 months stands for. That's what the times, times, and half a time stands for. They're all symbolic of this period between the... the, the uh, Christ arising from the dead to the second coming. That's what that's a picture of. 
And what's being painted here is that God has prepared this time and a place for them during this time. This is the people of God. This is the church. This is you and I. We are waiting during this time. And what does it say? That she is to be nourished. In Scripture, if you go back and look at Isaiah, the minor prophets, if you look all the way through the text, what is the church described as? A bride. The church is a bride. God is taking care of the bride until the groom comes. The groom is coming. He is coming. And we're just waiting. Faithfully waiting on his return. Concerning the birth of Jesus, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. The birth of Jesus is the grandest light of history. The sun in the heavens of all time. It is the pole star of human destiny. The hinge of chronology. The meeting place of the waters of the past and the future. My former pastor used to say this, and I loved it. He said, a baby changes everything. Parents, you know that. A baby changes everything. Grandparents, you can say the same thing. A grandbaby changes everything, doesn't it? A baby changes everything. And this baby changed everything. So this morning... Here's what you need to know, is that Satan is real. And if you are a believer, he is trying to get you to reject your faith. He is trying to get you to deconstruct your faith. He is trying to get you to turn from Christ and turn to the world for all your hopes and dreams. And if you are not a believer this morning, Christ or Satan, Satan is doing his absolute best to try to distract you from the things of God. Satan is real. But here's the other thing that you need to remember. You have a great victor in Christ. So wherever you go after here, whether it's Applebee's or Chinese or something else, Go home, see family. Tomorrow we go back to work. Shame. We go back to life, right? Is that while Satan is active and prowling like a roaring lion, while he is active like that great red dragon that he is, that Christ is still victorious in it all. No matter what Satan tries to do, to get you to believe that he and the world are greater. Remember, he is, the, he is the king, if you will, of this world and the sin that is around us, right? The prince of the power of the air, as the scripture calls it. He is going to try to get you to believe every step of the way that what the world has to offer, what he has to offer, is better in every way than what Christ has to offer. And what I am telling you is this is that there is nothing that this world can provide you that Christ cannot give you infinitely times over in worth, 
in value and in goodness. Believe upon the name of Christ and keep doing it. You may say, I, be- I-, I-, I trusted in Jesus. Do you still? Trusting in Jesus is not a one-time thing. We have to keep doing it. It's an everyday thing. When Paul says in Romans, he says, call upon the name, those who call upon the name of Christ will be saved. Folks, that's not a sinner's prayer. That's not what it is. That is faithful individuals calling upon the name of Christ every day of their life. If you've only called upon the name of Christ once in your life and you got dunked in the water and that was it, it is likely that you're not a believer. Because the life of the believer is a daily walk with Jesus where we are daily calling upon the name of Christ. So call upon His name. And keep calling. And then when you're done calling, call again. That's what we do. That's the life of a believer. Are you content with that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. And we love you and we give you all the glory. Father, help us to honor you the way that you have sought to have been honored. Help us to believe and to continue to believe. Help us to help our faith to be strengthened and encourage us, Lord. Father, keep us from the temptations of Satan. Keep us from his accusations and his deceptions. And help us to just continue to cling to the the gospel. Help us to continue to boast in the cross. Father, I am so thankful for that babe in the manger. Lord, we love you and it's in Christ's name we pray.